metaphysics. When we think of metaphysics, we think of uh, tourist trap bookstores on the Oregon coast uh, run by ladies named Barb um, who have amethyst and then questionable books on the shelf of all sorts. And that's metaphysics, right? Or wrong. Dr. Arias, what is metaphysics? College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your hosts, John Johnson and Larissa Bianco. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. Our guest today is, uh, well, you know, it's hard to say who your favorite kid is. And if you have so many, it's probably even harder to say. Uh, our guest has 14 of them. And just like we have something like 25 senior fellows, people ask me, who's your favorite? It's really hard to say who that is, but we all kind of have that favorite. And uh, that favorite of mine might or might not be here with us today. Uh, but this is Dr. David Arias, a really an amazing scholar, amazing pedagogue and a blessing to have on the faculty of Albertus Magnus Institute. He also teaches at the seminary in Denton, Nebraska. And as I said, father of 14. So, you know, he's a moral hero uh, and excellent in all things. So David, great, great to have you with us. Thank you for taking the time. Hey, John, it's really great to be here. Uh, I, I'm, I'm privileged and honored to just do this podcast with you. So thank you for inviting me on. Thank you. And you've been with us from the beginning. Um, and, and we've worked together in various capacities over the years. And so uh, you've taught for us several times. And every time our fellows just love your courses and love what they, they take away from them. So um, I hope you've enjoyed yourself in these things as, as we've launched this, this endeavor that is the Magnus Fellowship. And because uh, I, know, I know we have. You know, it's been... It's been a real blessing. It's been it's been just a real joy to be part of the Monius Institute. And yeah, I've done I think three classes now, uh, a class in natural philosophy and a couple classes in in metaphysics, metaphysics part one, metaphysics part two, and in each time it's been just it's been awesome to interact with with the, the students. Many of them I I had in a previous life, I should say. I had some of them when I taught at Thomas Aquinas College with students, and so it was great just to reconnect and and to and also to get to know students that I haven't met before. And uh, no, it's been it's been wonderful. Uh, I've I've learned something I think from every class that I've done uh, with with the junior fellows. It's it's been awesome, and so I look forward to continuing, you know, with the mission of Monty's Institute, which I think is a great one, just to make available this freeing education to everyone. So it's been an honor. Amen. And, and really an honor on this side as well. And this is just the beginning. And so, and you're going to be teaching coming up here in, what are we doing? What's Larissa? Good to see you, by the way, Larissa Bianco, fr fresh off a marriage of some sort. How, how's married life treating you? It's wonderful. Yeah, it's here it, really too. Is. it really is. Uh, when is Dr. David Arias teaching next? What's the plan there? I should know these things. He is teaching a course on natural philosophy. I believe in this, we're in the fall, right? Yes, it's fall. So the coming spring. Are you aware of this? Awesome. Yeah, I am now. It's great. I, I don't do details. I just fly in for the games. Um, okay. So, um, we got a lot to talk about here. Uh, not the least of which is, is this upcoming course. But really, this is the first time, you know, we've had several podcasts with Dr. Arias, basically just snippets of his courses, which are amazing. But this is a chance for us to really talk to him and unpack some big ideas in a way that only he can. And I want to start with the biggest idea of them all, metaphysics. And of course, when we think of metaphysics, we think of uh, tourist trap bookstores on the Oregon coast uh, run by ladies named Barb. Um, who have amethysts that they invite you to feel the energy of these amethysts and um, and then questionable books on the shelf of all sorts. And that's metaphysics, right? 
or wrong. Dr. Arius, what is metaphysics? That's a, that's a great question to start with, John. Well, let, let me first tell you that when I teach metaphysics at the seminary, and I think also when, when I've taught in other capacities, one of the first things that I tell the students is along lines of what you just mentioned. I say, look, when you go into Barnes and Noble or maybe a used bookstore and you, and you go down an aisle and you see metaphysics on the shelf and you get all excited, I say, say first, say first a, a quick prayer to St. Michael the Archangel and then, and then leave, that, leave that aisle, go somewhere else. Because the only thing that those books uh, on, on, on that shelf will typically have in common with real metaphysics is, is the name, just the name. So yeah, what is, what is real metaphysics? What is, what is the science of metaphysics? Well, in order to answer this, I think we, we have to go back to the best of the ancient Greek philosophers, Aristotle. And one thing that Aristotle tells us is that we distinguish the different sciences based on, on what they study. And so the first way really to differentiate metaphysics from the other philosophical sciences and to say what it is, is, is to look at what it studies and to compare that to some things that are, are studied in other sciences. And uh, so I might, I might kind of begin to answer the question by, by backing up a bit and taking something of a running start, if that's okay. If, if, we, if we think of something like mathematics, uh, say geometry, or the study of numbers. Okay, if we, if we think of mathematics and the different mathematical sciences, we, we notice that what we study there is, is what has traditionally been called quantified being, ends quantum, as it's sometimes put. So in, in geometry, we know we study, we study shapes, we study the properties of shapes, we study solids, the properties of solids. And then of course, in the study of numbers, we study numbers and their, and their properties and so forth. So we study quantified beings. And then in natural philosophy, you study what are typically called mobile beings, beings that can change, okay? Natural substances. These are things that are, are subject to accidental changes. Uh, they can change in terms of, of where they are. They can change in terms of their quantity. They can change in terms of their qualities, and they can also undergo substantial changes. They can change into one another. So when you, when you eat your dinner, right, your dinner goes from being one substance to being you. So that's the sort of thing that you study in, in natural philosophy, these, these mobile beings, these changeable beings. And then in, in metaphysics, uh, as Aristotle puts it, we study being insofar as it is being. Okay, so we're not looking at quantified being or mobile being, but we're looking at being precisely insofar as it is being. And a big question that comes up, I should say, in, in the science of the metaphysics itself, this is something that Aristotle himself raises, is, well, what do we mean by being? As, as we know, when we study logic, uh, the term being, it can be said of substance, it can be said of of the different kinds of accidents, quantity, quality, etc. So which of those are we studying in metaphysics? Or are we studying all of those things? And Aristotle points out that, that being, as studied by metaphysics, it means a first and foremost substance, okay? And just to distinguish the kind of substance that we're studying in metaphysics from the first cause of that substance, i.e. God, we might say that when we say that in metaphysics we study being as being or substance as substance, we really mean created substance at the end of the day. Okay. And so that's one way, that's one way to first to first distinguish metaphysics, I think, from the other the other sciences is, is to do so in terms of its subject matter. How is this possible? Um, in the sense of uh, you, you talk about the different sorts of beings, right? And, and they're, you know, uh, mobile being, and then, you know, rational being below mobile being there's, what did you call it? Quantifiable being. If a quantifiable being could think, for instance, it might want to study something like a mobile being, uh, but a mobile being would be 
sort of so high above it. It'd be like a grasshopper studying me, sort of impossible. Uh, a a two-dimensional plane triangle, if it could think, would be really surprised to find out that there's three-dimensional things in the world. So how is something like being as such even accessible for a little grasshopper like me to study? Well, honestly, it, it takes some work for us to show that there even is a science of, of metaphysics, so there even is such a thing as, as metaphysics. Uh, it, it's interesting just to see how, how Aristotle and then St. Thomas following him, how, how they, as it were, establish that there exists the science. I, I think that in order for us to discover metaphysics as a science, we first have to go through some of these lower sciences. So for example, uh, in in natural philosophy, when we're studying mobile being, one of the great things that we do is, I think you might even say the greatest thing we do in natural philosophy is, is we show that there exist beings which are not material. So for example, at, at the end of, of Aristotle's physics, the last two books of his physics, books seven and eight, what he does is he he asks, what is what is the first efficient cause of mobile being, right? We have these, these changeable substances that make up the natural world. You and I are, are such substances, right? Dogs, cats, horses, trees, all the things that make up the material universe. They are these, these changeable mobile substances. Now, what is the first efficient cause of these things? Well, first of all, we show that there exists a first efficient cause of these things. And then Aristotle is able to show that this first efficient cause of mobile beings is not itself a mobile being. It's not itself a material thing. It's something that exists, but it's something that can't undergo change. And it's something that doesn't have any quantity whatsoever. So if it's not a being with with quantity, if it's not a substance uh, that has dimensions, then guess what? It's, It's an immaterial thing. So we show within natural philosophy that there exists at least one uncreated substance. And then in another part of natural philosophy, when you study the soul, one of the great things that, that you, that you show within the study of the soul is that the human soul is immortal. The human soul, it's able to subsist apart from the body and it can't be destroyed given its nature. It can't how do you be, show? How do you show that? Well, it, it's actually it's a it's a long it's a long proof with with different parts. But you you begin you begin that proof by looking at the operations or the activities of of the human intellect. And so Aristotle he's able to show by looking at what the intellect understands and what's involved in understanding that the intellectual part of the soul doesn't depend upon the body for its operation or its activity. And finally, it doesn't depend upon the body for, uh, for its being or for its existence. Uh, and then, and then through some additional argumentation, he's able to show that, that since the intellectual part of the soul is, is not composed of, of matter and form, okay. The way uh, natural substances that it can't corrupt it can't, it can't be generated or it can't be destroyed uh, like a natural substance can. Uh, so anyways, that's a very truncated, truncated version of kind of how he goes through things. And I'm skipping many steps, but it's principally through studying, again, the, the operations of the intellect and, and by seeing the implications of, of what's involved in something as simple as your ability or my ability to understand what something is, to understand the nature of a thing. How how does Arist or does Aristotle deal with the the question that would arise following that conclusion? If the intellect is immaterial, um, what's to say we aren't all sharing one of them? Uh, how do we know that that intellect is not being as such? How do we how do we know anything about the unicity of the intellect? 
Are we all knowing in one shared intellect? Do I have an intellect and do you have an intellect? I think I have a lot of questions that the likes of uh, Veroes, Avicenna, et cetera, fought about in the Middle Ages um, with the likes of Aquinas. But uh, what does Aristotle do with that first? I, I, I know I'm stepping into a big, big can of worms, but how do you, how do you deal with that? Yeah, well, in in the in the De Anima, which is the part of natural philosophy dedicated to to the study of the soul, uh, to the well, to the soul as as such, and to the human soul for sure. Uh, Aristotle he he doesn't he doesn't take that that question on directly, and and I think one reason why is because that seems to be a, a more difficult question that's that's reserved for the science of metaphysics. So he he establishes uh, in the De Anima that the human soul is is naturally incorruptible, as I mentioned before, and and as soon as he as soon as he establishes that, he doesn't do much more with regards to the human soul. He's he's actually unwilling to speak about the life of the human soul in separation from the body from within natural philosophy, and that's because he's kind of hit the intellectual ceiling. Uh, as far as natural philosophy goes, and so so that discussion is really reserved for for metaphysics, and and so the, I think that's one of the reasons why why you find Saint Thomas taking up some of those questions uh, in in more detail uh, than in than in Aristotle's text. Another reason is is what you mentioned that that some of the commentators on Aristotle, especially the the Arab commentators, they they thought that there was reason to. Th- to uh, to hold that there might just be one intellect that that exists that you and I are, are sort of tapping into, as it were. And one thing that St. Thomas does in in his work against this position, in his writings against uh, this position, is is he points out a very simple fact and one that we have to hold on to and never let go of. Uh, and, it's, and it's a fact of our of our own experience. You have the experience when you grasp something new, like let's say when you grasp a, a, a geometrical theorem or, or when you learn something for the first time, right? You have the experience of saying, I know this, right? I'm, I'm the one that's understanding this, right? Or I just reasoned out a conclusion. So I came to know this conclusion and I'm seeing it for the first time. I'm the one that's doing it, right? And I do the same thing. Everyone does the same thing. And, and the fact that you or I are doing this, the fact that you have an unshakable certitude of your firsthand experience of, of, of seeing this intellectually for yourself, that's, that's something that's really important because it helps you to grasp or it enables you to grasp that you're in some way the cause here and now of, of you grasping this truth. Does Aristotle address, does Aristotle deal with the question that might have been held by his predecessor, Plato, in that when I'm grasping something, maybe I'm just remembering it. Maybe, maybe the intellect is remembering something that it always should have known and has forgot. How do, how do we know the difference between those two? Yeah, that's a well. That's that's the famous problem of the of the mino, as it's called. So uh, right. yeah, the, one, one question that comes up in in the mino dialogue of of Plato is is uh, what exactly does learning consist in? Is learning coming to know something that we didn't previously know, or is is learning simply recalling something? That we knew previously but had forgotten, and and Socrates in that dialogue he argues he argues that learning is finally just recollection. It's it's remembering something that that we've known for a while, maybe known for a long time, and had just forgotten. And and one reason why he he seems to think this is because he can't really he can't really see how he can he can come to know something from things that are previously known to him. And Aristotle, he spends a good amount of time actually in the, 
in, in his posterior analytics right at the beginning, showing that that no, there is something, there is something about learning that involves us coming to know something that we didn't know previously. So he points out that that whenever you learn something, you're certainly relying on things that you previously knew, but there's also something new there. And I think a way to manifest that this is true is, is to think of what happens when, when a, a good teacher influences you so that you, you come to see something that you didn't see before. And you might ask, well, what does the teacher do for you? What exactly does he do for you? Well, the teacher always relies upon things that you previously knew. He brings to your mind things that you knew already. But what he does for you is he orders your thoughts or helps you to order your thoughts such that you can come to a conclusion that you've never seen before. And, and that's really where the newness lies uh, in, your, in your intellectual life or in my intellectual life is, is a teacher gives to us uh, an order or introduces an order into our thoughts that wasn't there previously. And, and through having that new order in our thoughts, we can come to a conclusion which we actually didn't grasp before, but that conclusion was, it was contained within the power of things that we knew before. And so anyways, that's something that Aristotle does tease out a little bit uh, in the, uh, the posterior analytics in, in answering his, his teacher, Plato, uh, and, and, and his teacher, Socrates, by extension. But wow. uh, if I can go back just for a second to please, yes, yeah, to the to the the, the larger the larger question that you brought up about how do we know that that there isn't just one intellect? Uh, well, as I mentioned before, if if each of us has a firsthand grasp of of myself, yourself, etc., understanding, you know, this truth, if you can say hey, I know from firsthand experience that I'm the cause in some way of, of my seeing this insight, right? I'm the one that's reasoning from premises to conclusion. I'm conscious of that. So I'm conscious that I'm, I'm coming to know this conclusion for the first time or something to that effect. If we can say that, then, then we can see that, that we each have an intellect, thanks to which, again, we come to know things that we didn't know previously. Now, that being said, there also is an uncreated, infinite intellect out there, namely the divine intellect. And, and each of us, in having the intellectual power that we do have, each of us is in some way participating in or sharing in the, the intellect of God. So your intellect, my intellect, Euclid's intellect, etc. Each intellect, each created intellect is really a created participation in the divine intellect. Just like, just like each being, each thing that exists is a created participation in the uncreated being who is God. So, so not to in, pick in, on it. Go oh, ahead. Sorry. Please. No, so I was just going to say, so, so in a way there, there, there was a partial truth to what the, the Arabic philosophers saw, right? They saw that, look, there's this, there's this intellect that exists apart from us. Okay. But that's not the whole story, right? The divine intellect is, is the first intellect. It's the uncreated intellect. It's the intellect of all intellects, right? It's the, uh, it's, it's the most perfect intellect that is and can be, but there are a bunch of created intellects, both angelic and human. And each created intellect shares in or participates in, uh, to a greater or lesser extent, the the light of the divine intellect. Yes. So I'm I'm really intrigued by this question because I kind of open with the joke about you know Barb in the pantheist bookstore, uh, the New Age current. Uh, but like, how did we get from metaphysics traditionally understood to metaphysics commonly you know misunderstood? And there seems to actually be a connection there between, you know, the way Barb thinks and the way the Mohammedan commentators thought about this question. Because if you ask Barb, um, you know, are you really knowing something? She she would totally deny the individual personality of the intellect and basically deem herself a, 
you know, just, it's all just, the self is just an illusion. There is no self. It's all just um, the divine intellect uh, coming to sort of, you know, unfold or know or understand, which seems to have some current or offshoot of the way the, the commentators understood the question of the unicity of the intellect. Is that fair? Or what, what goes into that? And then how would we, how would we demonstrate that there actually is a way for me to know and you to know, albeit sharing in the abyss of reality that, that is being itself. Um, how do I know, how do I know it's mine? Well, I, I guess I would, I would say that there, yeah, there, there may well be a, a similarity between what certain new age thinkers uh, have in mind and, and what some of the, uh, the Arab thinkers had in mind uh, in, in the Middle Ages. I also think there's, there's a lot of sloppy philosophy uh, that's, been, that's been done between uh, St. Thomas's day and in modern times, and there's a lot of sloppy philosophy that continues to be done. So I, I wouldn't want to just blame uh, Barb's uh, position on, on Averroes and, and Avicenna and others. I think more, more approximately. Nor, nor would Barb, right? She wouldn't, she probably wouldn't have much of an idea who Averroes and Avicenna are. Uh, but right. These thoughts come from somewhere. So yeah, sorry. Stay on. Yeah. I think, I think in order to give uh, really a, a full account of, of why Barb's position is there, one, one would have to sort of trek through the history of, of modern philosophy where, where, where metaphysics gets, metaphysics as a science gets kind of radically, uh, well, tweaked, damaged, uh, re-understood, misunderstood, uh, that sort of thing. But one, one, might, one might think back to uh, Rene Descartes as, as one who, who is, is part of this, uh, is part of this corruption of the science of metaphysics. He, he has a well-known work uh, called Meditations on First Philosophy, and he has he has six meditations on on first philosophy. First philosophy is another name for the science of metaphysics. And in in the course of his six meditations, which take place over six days, he attempts to recreate the science of metaphysics to re envision it. And I think there's a deliberate there's a deliberate parallel that he's trying to to point out between what he's doing in that work over those six days and what God did over the six days of creation. So he's trying to recreate the science of, of metaphysics. Uh, and, and it involves all sorts of, all sorts of errors his recreation does. Uh, but as you go through time, as you, as you get farther and farther uh, away from St. Thomas, away from Aristotle, of course, and then closer to the present, again, there, there are more corruptions that, that creep in. You find, for example, in, in, in Hegel, Hegel seems to have uh, an understanding of of God becoming uh, aware of himself in and through things that are taking place in time. So there doesn't seem to be, at least on a kind of pantheistic reading of, of Hegel, and there might be other interpretations of him out there as well, uh, at least on a pantheistic reading of Hegel, there doesn't seem to be a hard and fast distinction between the, the spirits of individual human persons and, and the spirit that is God. So, so there you can find, for example, you know, something that might be akin to uh, what, what Barb is thinking. And I think it's interesting because as, as, as you walk down that metaphysics aisle of, of the bookstore, again, it's really the name that is the last thing in common between the books that you find on, on Barb's metaphysics bookshelf and Aristotle's work metaphysics. I think probably for a lot of our contemporaries who are into new age stuff, it, it really refers to, to spiritual things, right. Or, or things, things that you really can't, you can't sense, right. Things that are above and beyond uh, the, the sensible order. And was, was that a, a genuine meaning of, of metaphysics? For the ancients, well, uh, in some sense, yes. 
Why? Because if we think of the term metaphysics, metatafusika, okay, that's that's the origin of, of the word metatafusika. And and one one meaning of of, of that of that Greek phrase is beyond the physical things. And a reason why the science of metaphysics, I think, is 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 properly named beyond the physical things, or is named from that phrase, is because the highest part of metaphysics, i.e., natural theology, it it does study, it does study purely spiritual substances. So it studies God, studies human souls. It's even able to say something about about angels. But it, but it does so in a very rigorous way, in a scientific way. So we so we begin by thing we begin by focusing on things that are very well known to us, and and we reason rigorously from the things that are well known to us, to the existence and nature of God, uh, to the, the nature of the human soul, uh, and and so forth. So that all that rigor though, is is gone right by the time that you get to. Uh, to, to Barb's books on on her bookshelf in the metaphysics section. After Aquinas, and this is the last. I'm going to ask you an inside baseball question here. Um, do with it as you will. But um, after Aquinas, where is the pivotal wrong term? Like certainly Hegel's swimming in it. Uh, Descartes is swimming in it. You know, you could pin it on bon, bon, uh, Bonaventure. Henry of Ghent, I mean, any of the Franciscans, where, where, where is the pivotal, not point of no return, but just the first point of deviation, I guess. That's a, that's a really good question. John. I'm not, I'm not sure I have, I'm not sure I have one, one person that I would, that I would blame it on. Uh, I certainly I certainly see that by the time you get to to Descartes and even and even before him, you can see that that uh, scholasticism has has corrupted significantly. You see that I think I think definitely there's uh, something to be blamed on on uh, some of the Franciscans perhaps. Uh, I don't want to blame uh, Saint Bonaventure. <laughs> Not all of them, right? But but it's interesting because. You, you see, even in St. Thomas's day, and St. Thomas was good friends with St. Bonaventure, you see in St. Thomas's day uh, certain debates that, that w- would lead to, uh, I guess when you, when you draw their implications, uh, that, that would lead to some of the positions that you find later on uh, in the modern. So, for example, there's, there's the debate over how many substantial forms do you find in a human person? And St. Thomas and his followers, his fellow Dominicans, they, they vigorously defended the position that there's, there's just one substantial form in every human person, and, and that's the human soul, the rational soul. And through a man having the one substantial form that he has, the one rational soul that he has, he's, he's the substance that he is, he's the body that he is, he's the animal that he is, he's the man that he is, etc. The, the Franciscans, by contrast, they defended the position that, that in a human person you find a multiplicity of, of substantial forms. So one in virtue of which a man is a substance or body, another in virtue of which he's alive, another in virtue of which he's an animal, another in virtue of which he's a human person. And, and this, this division, between the division between the Dominicans and the Franciscans it actually harkens back to a division that you find in Aristotle and, and Plato. And it might not sound like it's that huge of an issue, but I think by the time you get to someone like, like Descartes and you ask, well, what is the nature of the human person? Well, Descartes thinks that, that he consists in his mind. He thinks he consists in this, this intellectual substance that he calls a res cogitans, and he thinks that the res cogitans, the thinking thing that is Rene Descartes, is just accidentally united to this machine body. It's the ghost in the machine view of the human person. And again, that that view 
which is essentially a recycling of a view that you get uh, from Socrates and from Plato, transmitted in some way uh, to the moderns by the Franciscans, that, that view, it ends up becoming, I think, by and large, the, the modern view of, of the human person. And if you fast forward even more from Descartes, well, people say, okay, look, we have this ghost and we have this machine. And, and, and as we get closer to the present, people start, start thinking, well, why do we really need the ghost? Why not just, why not just have the machine? Isn't it more plausible? Isn't, more, isn't it more reasonable just to assume that a human person is a machine and nothing more? Let's use Occam's razor or something and, and let's do away with this unnecessary postulate of a ghost in the machine. Uh, and then so you, you, you get the view that the human person is essentially just a machine, right? And just like human machines, we can, we can tweak things, we can change things as, as we see fit. Well, we can do the same with our own uh, human bodies because uh, there, there's, nothing, there's nothing spiritual about us. There's nothing really uh, divine about us in any way. So, wow. Yeah, there's, man, we could have so much more to talk about, especially what you mentioned about Socrates. I had never made that connection between Plato and Socrates and the moderns, but it seems like Socrates would be perfectly okay with uh, just just the ghost, but modern man is perfectly okay with just the machine. Um, and then sort of crying out to be, like you said, D- Descartes is living in his own mind. And it, it's just echoes of this, this passage in scripture. It speaks of Judas having gone to his own place. It's this real, it's a place of doom, right? A total total aloneness, total isolation. It's, it's, it's a horrific, but accurate picture of hell. So I guess the question is, where do we go from here? How do we get out? Is there, is there a thinker um, who attempts to rectify this and not necessarily in a way that just, you know, is a, is a return to the heyday of scholasticism, but in a way that synthesizes everything that's come before uh, all of the epistemological errors in place we find ourselves in now. I know there've been attempts of that. Uh, I mean, guys, Husserl, phenomenologists, um, but but what is the way out of this epistemological wrong turn, or is there one? I, I think the I think the answer is 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 a wholehearted and and full fledged re- return to to Saint Thomas. And into his teachings, and I think that's what we find uh, the Catholic Church herself recommending. So, for example, in in the great encyclical Eterni Patris by Pope Leo uh, the Thirteenth in eighteen seventy nine, we find him telling us that we we need to go back to Saint Thomas. That's where we're going to find. That's where we're going to find the way out of. A lot of these problems, I think, all of these problems that have been bequeathed to us by by some of the modern philosophers, and even prior to Eterni Patris, remember we had the First Vatican Council, and the First Vatican Council is is well known, I think, for its its definition of of papal infallibility. A lot of people don't realize that some of the most luminous, if not the most luminous. A teaching on the nature of human reason and the nature of faith and how the two uh, complement one another and interact. Such teaching comes from Vatican I. And Vatican I dogmatically defined various uh, truths that we find in scripture and tradition that we can know God's existence and nature just from the natural light of human reason by looking at created things and, and so forth. And so I, I think, I think natural uh, theology, which is the highest part of the science of metaphysics, I think that's that's an essential ingredient to uh, the solution of of these modern problems that we're talking about. It's not it's not the only thing, but uh, as as Larissa mentioned before, that's that's going to be an upcoming class uh, in in Monius, uh, God willing, and and in that class. 
I hope we'll be able to look at demonstrations for God's existence that that we can put together, that have been put together just by the natural light of human reason. And we can come to know many things about, about God's nature, his attributes, uh, how he's distinct from the world, and so on, just by the natural light of human reason. And this is actually the the highest and the best natural use of human reason is, is to know God through our intellects by looking at his creatures. In fact, one thing that Aristotle points out in the metaphysics is this, and this, this maybe goes back to something that you said earlier, John, is you, you had asked early on, you know, how, how can we do this? How can we engage in metaphysics? It seems like it's something too high for us lowly human persons, right? And, and Aristotle himself, he, he echoes that, that question. He, he says, aren't we in a way reaching too high when we attempt to study God? And he says that the science that we call metaphysics, he says that this science, this knowledge, he says it's so great that either it belongs to God alone or it belongs to God principally, and we can share in it. And he ends up saying the latter. He ends up saying, well, you know what? This, this knowledge that we call metaphysics, it's, it's a knowledge that belongs to God principally. Okay, He first and foremost has it, and he has it most perfectly. But we can share in it. We can share in it. And, and by doing so, our intellects are perfected. Uh, and they're perfected as much as they can be, just on, on a natural level. The only thing that remains for us to do intellectually after uh, natural theology and metaphysics really is, is sacred theology, which, which takes its origins not just from the natural light of human reason, but also from the, the infused supernatural uh, light of the theological virtue of faith. So, wow. So it seems like that's that's part of the solution. That's part of the solution is is by making a, a full-fledged and wholehearted return to the teaching of St. Thomas with a special emphasis, a special focus on on natural theology and what we can know about God. Uh, and that's the, the what you just said, that this is something in which we can share. The weight of that as good news cannot be overstated that is that is uh it's it's like it's it's like the gospel to hear that to the light to the light of reason is that is that god can be known being can be known things are knowable things are shareable and we are not alone and that really is an epistemological question that modern man has cornered us into this place of rejecting. And that's a horrific spot to be in. Larissa, you have been just sitting in wonder and and so sorry, uh, but please jump jump in. I will mute. Oh, you're fine. I am sitting in wonder. And I've I've been thinking about the order of knowing and the order of learning in this whole conversation. Um, and we know, you know, the order of knowing, the top we have theology, philosophy, all the way down to is it natural science with the experience and observation and then reverse of that the order of learning begins there so i'm this whole conversation been thinking about where metaphysics fits into this um because it seems like it would be in right there in philosophy but it also feels like and maybe this is part of the solution to john's question about education um or how do we turn to this is it begins in the lowest phase, the first phase of the order of learning, and that you can because you can know God. A child can know God in this lowest level. Um, so I don't, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I guess I'm asking where does metaphysics fit into this? Um, the whole order of knowing, and how does that play out in a person's education and formation? That's that's a, a an excellent question, and. And, and it's one that, that has been taken very seriously, I think, o- over the centuries. There's, there's a great text uh, in, in St. Thomas's commentary on Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, of, of all places, where St. Thomas, he, he takes the time to lay out, it's in summary form, but it's, but it's unpacked, 
still. He, he takes the time to lay out what we know is the traditional order of learning. And the occasion for him doing so is, is a comment that Aristotle makes, where Aristotle says that, that young people, they can, they can be mathematicians. Okay? They can be really good at math, but he says they can't be wise. They can't be wise. And St. Thomas asks, well, why is that the case? And, and how does that fit with this whole order of learning that, that he knows of from his own uh, personal experience of having gone through? And so what he ends up saying is this, if, if we had to lay out kind of the general subjects that we ought to study in the order that we should study them in, he says, well, first, and, and I think here he's taken for granted that he's dealing with a, a fairly mature student. So he's, he's not saying this is the order that, that your that your first grader should uh, should start with, okay? But you know, he's 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 dealing with a more mature audience. I think that he that he has in mind. So he's saying he's saying when you get to the the age where you can study logic, well, that's really where you should start is 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 with logic. Why? Because logic it actually gives us it gives us the tools that we need in order to come to know in in the strict sense of the term. So we learn about, for example. In logic, the demonstrative syllogism, whereby we come to have knowledge of why things are the way they are, a kind of unshakably certain knowledge of why things are the way they are. Okay, We need to know how to syllogize and how to demonstrate if we're going to have scientific knowledge in the fullest sense. So we have to begin with logic. And he says very clearly, we don't begin with logic because it's easy. He says, on the contrary, logic, it, it contains the, the highest sort of difficulty or the greatest difficulty. So we begin with there because it's the most necessary. And then he says, after logic, you get into uh, the mathematical sciences. And here he's thinking of something along the lines of, of Euclid's elements, for example, right? You'd study, you study Euclid, uh, and, and then you'd go on and you'd study other, other parts of math. That, that presuppose Euclid's elements as, as the foundation. So maybe you'd study some, some Apollonius, you know, some of his, his, his work on the, the conic sections and, and so forth. Uh, maybe you'd start doing a mathematical study of, of the universe even, okay, with, with Ptolemy's Almagest and, and so on. And then after you, do, after you do some mathematical studies, then you'd move on to to, na to natural science, to study of the natural world. And this would involve natural philosophy, I think, as, as well as the different parts of natural philosophy, like the study of the soul. This would also involve maybe some more detailed studies of, of the natural world that you might get in some of the empirical sciences. And after you study natural science, then you move on, he says, to moral philosophy or to moral science, where you study the human act and its ordination to human happiness. Uh, you study the virtues, the vices, and so forth. So notice all the subjects we've gone through. So logic, math, natural science, moral philosophy. And then he says, only after you've gone through those is, is your mind trained and, and ready to engage in, in metaphysics, okay, the highest of, of all of the philosophical sciences. And it's really, it's really the last part of the philosophical curriculum. But then, as you mentioned, Larissa, that's not the end of the story because after, after you study metaphysics and, 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 so to speak, finish the philosophical curriculum, well, now you're primed to go on and study supernatural theology, okay? What St. Thomas calls sacra doctrina, sacred doctrine or, or sacred teaching. So that whole philosophical curriculum, it prepares you for, uh, for the most divine of all of the sciences. Now, I, I mentioned that, that you can kind of finish the philosophical curriculum and go on to the study of, of theology, but I don't want to, to, mislead, uh, to mislead our hearers uh, in thinking that you only have to put in, you know, so much time doing philosophy, and then you're done. Then you can just kind of check the box and say, all right, no more philosophy. I'm just going to do theology from here on out. Uh, a wise man once pointed out to me that he said, the order of learning, it's, it's certainly linear. There's no doubt about that. But we also have to realize that it is cyclical. It is cyclical. And I know, I know in my own life, I found this to be extremely true. 
that sure you study logic at the beginning and then you move on and you study math and then you move on and you study natural uh, philosophy and so forth. But you find as, as, as you move from one discipline to the next that you say, you know what, I need to go back and study logic again. Okay. Cause I, I didn't, I didn't understand maybe as well as, as I should have, you know, certain aspects of demonstration or definition or, or whatever it happens to be. And so you return, you return to uh, those lower disciplines, right? And, and you find that you, you keep doing that. And I know, I know my seminarians that, that, that I teach, you know, they'll, they'll do their years of philosophy and they move on to theology and I'll, I'll, I'll check in with them once in a while, you know, after, they've moved on to theology and say, how's it going? You know, I miss having you guys in class. How are things going? And a lot of them say, they say, you know, theology is awesome, but we, we realize in studying theology, just, just how important some of those philosophical distinctions were and, and demonstrations were. And so a lot of them will say, Hey, you know, we go back to philosophy. We break out our texts again. We go back through Aristotle and certain teachings from St. Thomas, because we realize we really need to go back and just, master those things before we can do theology well. And, and I think that's really true. So, so there is this, this linear order uh, to, to, to learning, but there's also a cyclical order that's there. Yeah. So when you say study philosophy, I assume you're not just saying what a university would throw at a freshman would be like, here, read some Heidegger, read some Kierkegaard. Um, they actually, what would, you mentioned Aquinas, um, what would a true philosophical education look like? Because it can't just be one or two modern philosophers as a freshman. Yeah, no, you're, you're exactly right. I, I think, <laughs> I think there, are, there are many, many universities and colleges out there that unfortunately do it badly. They, they, they do what you just described is, is, is they'll just throw uh, philosophical texts of one kind or another at the students with, with no regard for, for this traditional order of learning that I've described and, and with no regard for, for the works that ought to be studied in, in, each of those, in each of those disciplines. Thanks be to God, a number of the smaller Catholic colleges in our country are taking seriously, do take seriously, the order of learning that I've just described. I, I think this is something that Monus Institute uh, does as well. Uh, so what would this look like? Well, if you want to get serious, what you would do, I think at the outset is you say, all right, I'm going to study philosophy. So I got to break open my Aristotle. Okay. I'm going to do some logic. So, and, and even before you break open Aristotle, uh, traditionally people will We'll read Porphyry's Isagogi, which introduces you to, to the five different kinds of, of universal names, genus, species, difference, property, and accident. And then you go through Aristotle's categories, and then you go through his on interpretation, and then you go through his work uh, on, on the different kinds of arguments, the prior analytics, the posterior analytics, the topics, uh, and so forth. So you, you go through these these, these primary texts and, and uh, when St. Thomas has a commentary available, when St. Albert the Great has a commentary available, you, you try to work through those as well. That's, that's the best way to do it. Now, there are some you know, secondary texts out there uh, that disciples of Aristotle and St. Thomas have written you know, that, that can help us along as well. But it seems to me if you really want to do this seriously, that's the sort of thing you have to do. I've also found that that when you get to, let's say, mathematics, we should really take seriously the study of Euclid's elements. That's kind of the tried and true, you know, benchmark of, of mathematics over the centuries. And you really get, you really get a, a concrete uh, example of masterful demonstration, a la Aristotle, in Euclid's text. So I would say, yeah, break open Euclid, uh, start going through book one, then book two, then book three, you know, keep going as far as you can go. There's, uh, there's a story told uh, about Abraham Lincoln. This is, this is a true story. 
So when he was when he was undergoing his his uh, his training for law to be a lawyer, he he heard the term demonstration, and and he wondered, okay, what exactly does it mean to demonstrate? And and he realized that there's a notion of demonstration which is so strict that that a de- that this demonstrative uh, form of argument it begets a conclusion that cannot be denied. And he thought to himself, look, if I'm going to be in the business of arguing for a living, right, arguing as a lawyer, I better know what this kind of demonstration looks like in the flesh. And he didn't really up to that point. So what he did was he took a break from his law studies and he went home and he studied the first six books of Euclid's Elements until he got to the point that he could he could recall any one of those demonstrations in the first six books by memory. So he mastered all of the propositions, all the demonstrations in all six of those books of Euclid's Elements. And it was only after that that he, he thought to himself, okay, now I'm ready. Now I'm ready to argue. Now I'm ready to, to, to really be a lawyer. Okay, I can really I can really demonstrate in the fullest sense. Okay, so there's there's an example of of someone you know not not too far from our own day who who was liberally educated uh, in in that way. Okay, if anyway, only so, we could count on the uh, the presidents of our lifetime to have done such a thing. Uh, but wow, that's an amazing story, and that's I mean that's kind of what the Albertus Magnus Institute is for somebody who's, you know, already a professional established, been to college and they, and they, they want to get back into this stuff that they never got, or they want to refresh her when they did get it. I had never heard that. It's amazing. Yeah. And then, so again, as you go through the different subjects, you know, moving from math, uh, so forth, you want to, you want to do what you can to study the, the primary texts. Uh, again, especially Aristotle, especially St. Thomas uh, and, and their disciples. And as I mentioned, this is something that the smaller Catholic colleges in our country are, are taking very seriously. Uh, this is something that Monius Institute is taking very seriously. And, and it's, it's by these institutions doing this that, that God willing, the, the intellectual life, the Catholic intellectual life uh, in in our country, or at least in parts of our country, will will get will get revived. Amen. And we see this happening. I think there's so much to be hopeful for. Um, just the renewed interest in education on the whole at every level right now. Um, I mean, the I mean, we had no idea that we would see the the response that we did. I mean, we're in about a year and a half of existence. We've seen over 800 students come our way, uh, and they're just you know cross-pollinating bubbling up uh with each other in the in the courses themselves and and so um dr aries you've been a tremendous part of that um we've got a lot more to talk about i'm tempted to ask you to be a regular on this podcast because i could just talk for hours and hours uh with you and and just listen to you you're such a good teacher and and you're so uh meek about the way you do things but but you you have a way of doing exactly what you described about the great teacher uh, and bringing people to reality in a way that, that is really unlike any other people. So I want to thank you for that. Larissa, any final thoughts? Um, we are over time, but that's okay. It was worth the overtime for apologies to anybody listening at home who just wanted this to be an hour, but it was so much more and so much better. It's our 60th episode. We can go a couple minutes over if we want. Actually, episode. Wow. <laughs> Exciting. That's right. All right. So your your next class, Dr. Arias, is again, Larissa, when does this start? It's going to start in the spring. So be on the lookout. We'll be announcing news. I'll make a plug. Uh, it's not shameless because it's not a self-promoting plug, but do buy Father Owen Carroll's book, Sufferings and Glory of Christ. It's available now on Amazon and our website. If you are a fellow in the Institute, you can get a 
uh, a 100-year warrantied leather, genuine calfskin bound uh, version of this book. The book is so good that something had to die to give you this splendid uh, edition of it in in calfskin. So thank the calf and thank Father Owen Carroll. He is uh, really a treasure in his 90s now, um, and we're publishing his work. Uh, in fact, Dr. Arias uh, and his and his wife were working to, to transcribe the next commentary on the five ways. I that's sitting out when I made. I haven't revealed that to anybody else publicly, but there you go. If you're listening, um, and, but he really is one of these. Uh, he wouldn't call himself a Thomist, but he's one of the disciples of Aquinas who are doing a good job of bringing us back to an authentic understanding of Saint Thomas, ite ad Thomum, as Pope Leo said. Uh, and that really is the answer in many ways. So, Dr. Arias, uh, on behalf of Larissa Bianco, I want to thank you for being here. And we do hope you'll join us sometime very, very soon. And we'll see you in the fellowship. Thank you, John. It's been a, it's been a real blessing. I thank both you and Larissa. And yeah, I'd love to be on it again. So, yeah, let's do this again, John. Awesome. Adios. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2022, Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. All rights reserved.